and showtime. Welcome back to the Cyclotips Tour Daily, everybody. I'm Kaylee Fretz, and we are in we're in Tarb again. Uh, we're actually we're only about uh, what thirty feet. Ten next meters door. next door to where we were. Fifteen meters yesterday. from where we were last night. However, it's quite a bit quieter because we've lost our favorite DJ, unfortunately. Yeah. Johnny, can you reset the scene for me? It's a bit lighter today. We're next to the the very strong fountain where I just tried to sort of wash my hands and it all spurted into my face. There's a series of restaurants, people drinking, people eating. I think we're much more tired today. <laughs> The words aren't coming as easily. It's been a bit of a hard day. We've, uh, yeah. We had an eventful drive to Lourdes. Um, we went to a grotto. That was good. Oh, yeah, I missed that. I've already, I'd already been. I've, I was raised Catholic, so I've seen all this stuff. This is like... <laughs> like when Kaylee talks about bike racing and it's like things he's done, like going to Lourdes is my equivalent of that. It's like, I've done this. <laughs> there was a bit of traffic it. about did we Did we talk much about Lourdes yet? No. Well, Johnny, you're... <laughs> As the expert, uh, I'll put myself on the spot here. Why? Why would someone perhaps find themselves in Lords if not for a bike race? Uh, okay, this is me remembering 15 years ago after just bigging up my Catholic credentials. There was a miracle performed there. I think a, a girl or a woman in a school saw Mary, the mother of Jesus, in a. In a toilet cubicle, I think. Or is that, is that from my imagination? Am I getting Harry Potter confused? This, with this? Is, this is very close to being blasphemous. I think that Joshua Robinson of the Wall Street Journal uh, might be able to fill us in on the details here. Yeah. Uh, yes, this is because I read the Wikipedia page before you guys this morning. That's, that's the research that proper journalists do. They actually look up what they're, what they're talking about. Right no, about. Lord is famous for a series of Marian apparitions in 1858 where the Virgin Mary appeared to a, the 14-year-old daughter of a miller um, who was later uh, backed up by the Catholic Church, which decided that she wasn't making them up. And she, uh, these apparitions, I think they happened 18 times over the course of a year. Um, and she was later sanctified. She is Saint Bernadette. And there's like special water and stuff. Yeah, I think I think I'm allowed to give the honest sort of critique of the place, in as they are technically my people. Um, I love the fact that they just decided she was telling the truth, and I want to know the exact regimen she went through uh, to be found that out. 18 is a very specific number, um, and yes, you can buy holy water for a, a, a plenty of euros, and. It's holiness, I may guess, may also be up for debate, depending on which shop you're buying it from. But it's it's an extremely important site. Popes come and visit. Yeah. Um, and, you know, people come from great distances to, yeah. to come and visit this grotto, which is around the back of the, I guess, basilica that's built on top of it. it, it um, and it's exactly where the, the start was today. There's no doubt that it's, you know, it's a... A, sig a significant cultural and religious place for people. Um, I remember from school, a lot of groups would, uh, like my, my classmates would volunteer to take um, unwell people there, uh, people with you know terminal illnesses and stuff. 
And so if it gives if it gives people some comfort and they can make the trips there, then that, that's obviously, you know, it, uh, a comforting thing. I would wager that today's start was actually the most international of any stop on the tour because yeah, there were groups probably. from yeah. all over the world. I saw a group from the Philippines, one from Cameroon, uh, all traveling to this town at the foot of the Pyrenees. Yeah. I, I felt very much the imposter wandering around uh, the grotto because I don't really know what it's about. And there, it's, it's clearly an incredibly important place yeah for people and uh, well, I, just, I don't really get it. It's not really my thing. I, I think but, it can be important and weird at the same time. I don't think those two have to be <laughs> mutually exclusive. Well, uh, yeah, and to be very clear, like sort of the, the the area that we went to see, which is sort of the, the key area, that part felt different from the uh, plethora of trinket shops yeah. all <laughs> up and down every single road and like Jesus-shaped plastic tubes that you can put your <laughs> put your water in and like all sorts of weird that's just that's just weird that, do you not do you weird. not like a good mary make a mole <laughs> so yeah a different a different feel to the star of the tour stage you know Very the, different. The, the team buses were shaped around the big basilica and it was all quite symmetrical and looked nice should we move on from this before we get ourselves in any more trouble with uh god god and and we get smitten or something it was quite a bike race today. Uh, we were kind of, I guess, hoping, believing that today would be the day when the tour was roughly decided. I mean, there's still a 40K time trial. Anything could still happen. But, well, we kind of got our wish. Who, Johnny, you want to run through the, the what happened for me? Well, I mean, we can repeat this every day, but Wavanagh basically attacked from kilometer zero. <laughs> and kept attacking throughout the day until it looked at one point like there was an outside chance of him winning the stage behind uh, the GC race that we, well, that everyone had envisaged, erupted Tele Pogaccia to his credit. And I don't think in the past, a lot of second place riders have done this and have been very uh, happy to conserve their second. He started to attack Jan Bavisma and Jan Fingo basically on his own. He got minimal help. Mikel Bjerg was out there back quickly, Brandon McNulty, or McNasty, as uh, one of the Velo Club members suggested we call him, I think, which is a, a great nickname. He was he was done early after his exertion yesterday, and eventually we ended up with Pogaccia put in a series of attacks, unable to drop Vingago. Both Vingago nearly crashed, kept upright. Pogaccia did crash. Vingo waited for him. Vingago makes it to the front, gets paced a bit by Wattvanart, then Pagacha drops off on the hull to come. Vingago wins the stage, puts a minute into Pagacha, puts his lead up to over three minutes. And unless, well, we'll talk about what could happen in, in the coming stages later, but barring a huge upheaval, the yellow jersey belongs to the, the Dane. It was a pretty spicy day's racing, I'd say. Yes, it was great. There were, on, on the penultimate climb, the Col de Spandel. Yes. Or Spandels, I don't know. Spandels. Spandel. I'm no Frenchman. We all know this. No. Uh, there were seven attacks by Tadej Pogacar on Jonas Vingegaard. Sepkus kind of paced himself back into the, into the race a couple of times. Um, but yeah, it was, it was pretty much man on man for most of the last hour. And it was very exciting. And rare to see that kind of thing. You, you know it's a good day when the pressure starts getting involved. I mean, I didn't like it when everyone clapped when 
Vingo waited for Pikachu. I don't like it when the press room claps ever, really. It's a bit no, weird. It's, it's a bad look. But it's good when it's uh, when it's like oohs and ahs, and you can hear something happens by the reaction. Oh, yeah. And then a pip, like, well, an attack goes, and everyone's like, everyone mirrors the commentary that you're hearing from French television. Guy fell off his chair. A guy yeah. fell off his chair. <laughs> Pikachu put in like his second D, and then two rows in front of us, the chair just collapsed under a reasonably sized Frenchman. He wasn't like overly large. The chair no. just gave way, such was the uh, the racing. Yeah, that was a good moment. He was quite embarrassed. He was. He, he, was. he kind of sheepishly picked himself up. Uh, I think he was probably embarrassed that he'd taken the limelight away from the day's racing because <laughs> there was quite a bit going on and still he was the most important person in the room at that moment, which was uh, good for him, I suppose. You know, I, to return to the bike race, I was thinking today, I was trying to think today if I have personally experienced a more dynamic uh, GC narrative and GC race and 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 frankly like, it, you know, an hour anything like that since I started covering the Tour de France um, in what, 2011 and I'm struggling I'm struggling to think of one uh, it there was just more that happened in the span of about 90 minutes today than, than in almost any period in any Tour de France in recent memory. And I think that needs, certainly needs to be acknowledged. And because, because largely because that is entirely, entirely the doing of Tade Pogaccio, who is going to probably lose this bike race, but will have lost this bike race in a way that nobody has lost a bike race in a very long time. He will lose it with absolute class and having left no options on the table. And I don't think we can say that about most other podium finishers for the last decade or two. I think that you're uh, slightly overlooking Julian Alaphilippe in 2019 when his stint in the yellow jersey was brought undone by a landslide. Okay, but that was an, an act of nature. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think that would... Alaphilippe had nothing to do with that. Really? Well, I would say that today, Jonas Vingegaard was the act of nature. <laughs> he could be one of the tree people. He's so <laughs> sort of impish and slight. No, I, I think that we need to take a step back and, and like I said, like acknowledge what we're watching. Acknowledge the rider and, and just the dynamism of Pogacar. I mean, Jonas Vingegaard is probably going to win this tour. I mean, he will have deserved that victory. I mean, he played yeah. his cards to absolute perfection. He used his team, well, both both today and on the Grenon were largely, I think, the result of, of team efforts. You, you can take nothing away from him. But fundamentally for me, the most exciting racer in this bike race is not Vingigo, but Pogacar and probably Watt Van Aert. It's basically what happened to Primoz Roglic after he lost in 2020, where... It sort of looked inevitable, and every, and that, the thing that you hate most in the tour and bike racing is when there's an air of inevitability to it. And no one wanted to see Primoz Roglic just ride his way into that victory. The same way this year that normally see Pogaccia just sort of dominate as he did last year. And so it will do great things for both Pogaccia and the tour that we actually had a proper race. And we've been speaking the past couple of days, the fact that the Netflix cameras are here, they couldn't have picked a better year in... However, probably since Netflix started in the noughties. Well, maybe some of those noughties years would have been pretty good to have as a Netflix documentary, but... I mean, that that's the last... I, I, I don't want to draw any, like... This is this is the problem with our sport, is I don't want to not... I don't want to draw any direct comparisons to the bad era. Yeah. Because then people think that I'm 
drawing comparisons to the preparation of the athletes when, in, in fact, I'm basically I think just, I'm just talking about tactics purely. Like the last sort of mano a mano climber battle that I can remember that felt a little bit like this was probably Schleck Contador in like 2010, where there was just sort of you know, tit for tat attacks and go and come back and get pulled back and, and like no waiting and no big teams and no big sort of like uphill lead out trains. None of that stuff. Just two guys who were very, very good at climbing, attacking the crap out of each other. That's the last time I can kind of remember anything like like we've had in the last couple of days. And yeah, I just think it's worth it's worth mentioning. <laughs> it's worth talking about the fact that this has been a phenomenal Tour de France. And it's not even over yet. It, it could still go completely sideways. Tomorrow we have the potential for crosswinds. Saturday we have a time trial. Things can go wrong in a time trial. I mean, let's let's think about another Dane in a time trial. Michael Rasmussen managed to to screw one up pretty badly. It is entirely possible still, right now, that Tadej Pogacar could, could could wear yellow in Paris. It's just obviously after today, significantly less likely. If anyone could, Pogacar could do, and that's kind of I mean. I and we and people bemoan sort of the character, the personalities that Vingo and Pogacar have. Granted, they're both young and they're not, they're not necessarily like as boisterous as the likes of a Wiggins or whichever other, like, other riders, but at least they race with personality. You know, you can't, you can't have everything. It's like we're talking today, like the GC narrative has been so good and maybe other areas of the race. I think the race as a whole, oh, wow. Wow, let's, well, we can't be, yeah. let's shelve this conversation because this is the conversation that we have from the Champs-Élysées oh, when we okay, talk about okay. how good the Tour de France was. I don't want to go too far down that particular rabbit yeah, hole. Yeah, we still got three days. We still have three days of podcast but, to fill. But yeah, it's, um, it was just like we were watching the bike race and you're actually there like on the edge of your seat, which sometimes when you're watching cycling is only in very brief moments. But today it was like up and down. It was like, oh, oh, there he goes again. Oh, what's, what's happening? I, yeah, I, I think that Pogacar probably fell for the same tricks as before, which it, well, it's not even falling for the same tricks. It's more that like he has to try. He has to try over and over and over again. And he tried on the Spendels. Uh, and as a result, essentially didn't have anything left when he needed to have something left on the Hodakam. And, and that there was just no, there's no way around that. Like even he cannot attack that many times and, and just continue onward inevitably. Because he's not Wafan Art, who apparently can do that, and is sort of next to my list of, of people to talk about today. That was unbelievable from him today. I mean, he's not, he's been in the breakaway, what, what two thirds of the stages since the start. He's in the breakaway again today. He makes it over all of these climbs with climbers who should be significantly better than him. I mean, you look at the riders that were in that very large breakaway. It's a bunch of guys who have been GC contenders previously. Drops. All of them is the last man standing on the road and then proceeds to pace his teammate motorcycle and proceeds to pace his teammate up one of the hardest climbs in the entire Tour de France. It was just stunning. When drop Tade Pagacha for a moment before he's when maybe that was just because he was like pacing and setting up the, the attack or whatever, but I mean Garen Thomas wants what UAE are having for breakfast. I want what Wild Arts having for breakfast. Because he's clearly having, if, if you're having two Weetabicks, Wow and Art's having like 14. <laughs> I think how, is he keep, how is he still going? He's just a mo I don't know. I can't answer yeah. that question. He's, he's a different type of rider. Different breed. He's a different, yeah. I mean, I feel like for a couple of years there, in the sort of battle between him and Matthew Vanderpoel, Vanderpoel was the one that seemed the more exceptional. 
And Venderbilt's obviously, obviously had a very off Tour de France this year, probably tired from the Giro. But that is certainly flipping in the other direction. I mean, if you think back to sort of the cross days, I don't have the numbers in front of me. And they, they did, they sort of traded titles back and forth quite a lot. But I believe that Vanderpool was was generally in the lead overall between the two. Uh, and it's kind of terrifying to imagine a, a, a fit and firing Matthew Vanderpool also in this bike race. Maybe we will get that at some point. But if he is actually better than Wild on Earth, then that is just, it's hard to even imagine. I think I said this in a previous episode, but it, if Wafenart weighed 10 kilos less, then the, no question in my mind, he would be, he would be, if not a tour contender, then like a, the, the, the favorite for a Tour de France. I mean, Wait, he's on the just right a course. monster. If he, if he gets a course like Wiggins. Yeah. Then. Which maybe we do want, maybe we don't. That, that was, cool. that took a lot out of Wiggins. Um, to, to do that and to drop all that weight. And I don't think that Wildfunner is particularly interested in that, but there's no question he has the, he has the power. And what this tour proved is he has the ability to recover, which is really the big one for these GC guys is that he, he can do it every single day for three weeks. Well, and the other thing is Jonas Vingo was asked in the press conference, which at the time seemed like a weird question to ask, but it, in hindsight is actually very valid. It's like, what happens if, Wavenart changed his mind and and wants to go for the yellow jersey. How do your how does your team not only balance having the yellow and green jersey contenders? How do they balance that as well? And Jonas was like, "Well, it's a question for the sports director, but I don't see him. I don't see him doing that. He hasn't expressed that. But then at the same time, maybe we just share leadership again. It was actually a rare moment of like pure confidence from Jonas Vingo. He's like, "Well, let's share the leadership again because me and Primoz Roglic shared the leadership, and I'm in the yellow jersey." Bit of a small taste of fighting talk from from it's a good problem to have if you're Yumbo Visma I would say the other thing which uh, our colleague Joshua Robinson just pointed out is at the end of that press conference Vingo said maybe it's better to have to go into the Tour de France with two GC leaders which is a tactic you don't see work that that often Enric Mass's Movistar squad have tried for years with the Trident before focusing on a single leader never worked Ineos always going with sort of one defined leader Pagacha is one leader, but yeah. they pulled off with two. Yeah, but I think, think that two? it was somewhat decided for them relatively early, right? I mean, yeah. they, they've effectively had one leader since the Roubaix stage. Because I think internally they probably knew that Roglic was was not 100% after that. I mean, he, you know, dislocated his shoulder and popped it in on the side of the road uh, or the side of a roundabout, sitting in a plastic chair you're not you're not going to be able to, to to sort of fully recover from that fast enough so effectively i think they mostly had one but that's that's why you start with two right is that it's really hard to get through a tour de france unscathed and you cannot win a tour de france scathed and so it's you just it's just playing the odds basically and and you know if yumbo has been able to to work those dynamics effectively then there's no reason why they couldn't try the same thing next year um, on Roglic real quick since we brought him up I mean this has to be the end of his of his Tour de France I, attempts right I think it was there I, there was a funny feeling before the start I mean it's easy to say now but I think we may mention a podcast on a piece like Roglic joked on stage in Copenhagen that Vingo was really the team leader and it, he's obviously um, you know bowing before the, the wishes of the fans at the team presentation but they were, like Vingo was second last year the only one that ever dropped P- Pogacar Roglic has never really looked like putting a dent in Pogacar 
So maybe beforehand, it, it was easier to have Roglic there, who knows what he's doing now, to have the leadership, to share the leadership, with the, in the knowledge that everyone probably shared, maybe they never spoke about, that Vingo would eventually rise to be the, the challenger to Pogaccia. He'll just be Mr. Vuelta now. Yeah, I mean, fourth Vuelta. I mean, at, at this point, I think people, uh, people get, keep getting announced. Chris Froome confirmed today he's going to aim towards the Vuelta. I mean, he's not going to be in GC contention, probably. But everyone and their mum is heading to the Vuelta, it seems. Yeah. All right, it'll be a good, good Vuelta. Maybe we'll have to send you over, Johnny. I'll, I'll happily go. I think Ronan wants to go too, so maybe we'll have a, a trip to Utrecht. But yeah, I mean, Roglic, fourth Vuelta, that would be, he'd probably be happy with that, to be honest. I'm sure. Should we dig into kind of the second biggest story of the day? I mean, the biggest story of the day is the, is the crack on the Hodakam and the fact that Vingergo wins the stage and, and, and secures probably his yellow jersey for the Tour de France. Second biggest sort of moment of the day would have been the moment when Tadej Pogacar hit the ground, uh, which actually came shortly after Vingergo almost hit the ground. Uh, he said in his press conference that he, he had a chain issue, like dropped a chain or something, and basically... I don't know if that threw his balance off or when he's trying to pedal, it just messed him up. But anyway, he, he had to stick a foot out around a left-hand corner. And then shortly after that, uh, because Pogacar was, was pinning it down the backside of Spandels, we saw Pogacar himself misjudge a corner, come in a bit hot, miss an apex, or hit an apex early, actually, and stick his front wheel in a bunch of gravel and, and hit the deck. And then after that... Vingago waited. And that was an interesting moment. We had a bit of a, an internal debate at CT. I will say that we were trolling our, our colleagues a little bit. Uh, <laughs> we won't go into the, into the depths of the WhatsApp chat, but... It was extensive. It was extensive. It's the most we've talked on that chat. Long story very short is Johnny and I were kind of on the... In the... You don't have to wait there, camp. And, it, you know, it, it ended, ended up being okay. But if he had... If Vingago had cracked then on the Hodakam, he would look quite silly having waited. Obviously, the other side of that coin is that it was an incredibly sportsmanlike thing to do. It was, it was classy. Uh, it showed a huge amount of confidence yeah. from Vingago. And I think that's the big thing is if you're looking at that moment yeah. <laughs> from a slightly cynical lens, is there actually there are a lot of reasons for him to stop. One, it essentially nullifies the descent because if you just waited for Pogacar... Pogacar can't attack you again on the descent, right? It essentially nullifies that, and Vigigo had, had clearly been in difficulty once already. So that makes sense just from that perspective. And the second thing, and the thing he probably wasn't really thinking about, is the fact that this sport is one of, well, the fans make the sport, really. Like, everybody out there, your eyeballs are what fund this whole thing. And we kind of learn a lot about riders in these particular moments. And watching Vigigo do that, I'm sure, earned him some fans today. I think there's also a tactical level to it because up the road, there was Wout van Aert. So there was somebody that could drop back to him if he got into difficulty. Behind him, there was Sepp Kuss and there might've been Benut. I think Benut was probably gone by then. But either way, uh, he wasn't completely isolated. There were options for him ahead and behind, which wasn't the case with Pogaccia at all. So I, I, I think that there's probably some pretty quick thinking on his feet, either from being a god himself or from his directors. But I, I see more positives to him waiting than to him going. I'm interested. I don't think today we heard what uh, Josh thinks of it. 
And if I can don't bother for a second. What do you think of the the weight the whole waiting the bike thing? Race. The, no, <laughs> <laughs> what do you think of the, the whole waiting so thing? There's I think there's another theory. Okay. And you know, Vingo didn't look all that comfortable descending either. And I was discussing with some people, what if the wait was just a way for Vingago to tee up Pogachar to have to wait for him should yeah. he have a little slip? Yeah. But, he, like, but in terms of, like, me and Kaylee were arguing that we, we don't want to see these riders be, like, singing Kumbaya, holding hands around a tree all the time. Like, some, you don't want it to be, like, bitter and horrible and nasty, but you want a bit of tension. You want, you want a... You want a bike race to be a bike race. You don't want them all to be like, oh, I'm so happy for the rivals. You want a bit of edge to it. Do you think, in terms of that, do you, do you want but them to would, be rivals that was to be one edgy? Of, but or? that was one of the tough parts about the uh, Roglic Pogachar tour. Yeah. Where, you know, Pogachar kept saying, Roglic showed me the way. You know, we go on rides together. They were speaking Slovenian at times when they were just the two of them on a hard climb. And even there, I think we had the same conversation, which was, oh, the this is very nice. This is, uh, yeah, you know, Tour de France summer camp. And eventually, with that, the sort of the subtext came through. Like even Pagacha chasing down Roglic, and Pagacha's being what we say about that—the like, way that we're all viewed, that like, the riders are viewed uh, by the fans—and that that counts in for more than other sports. Is that Pagacha realized that Roglic is more popular in the country because of the narrative of lo losing and maybe triumphing later. Uh, ultimately, let's not lose sight of the fact that. It's probably a good thing that these guys are good boys. Yeah. You know, it's, but yeah. it would be nice if they just bared their teeth a little more. Yeah. I think it's, it's possible to hold two thoughts in your head at the same time, yeah. which is, it was an incredibly classy thing to do and a sportsmanlike thing to do. And a lot of, frankly, a lot of Grand Tour champions would never have done it. Right. A lot of them wouldn't because they, are bigger assholes. They're, hot, they're hardest killers. <laughs> yeah, they're hardest killers. And they want to win above everything else. Yes. And for that reason alone, it is commendable. But I think in, at the same time, you can hold in your head, I kind of wish these guys hated each other more because it yeah. would be more entertaining. I think if, if Vingago wins this tour and if something similar happens next year with Vingago in yellow and Pogaccia is going to go two tours without a yellow jersey victory, maybe we see a different side come out. I, I feel like Pogaccio would be less likely to wait in that, in that scenario. We don't know a ton about him, but he does. I mean, just based on the fact that how, he attacked seven times today on, on one climb, like, <laughs> he, he, just based on that he alone, he, he, he seems more likely to have continued on. Or at least, even if you didn't wait, you just sort of continue at the same pace. Mm. Maybe, maybe, you don't, you maybe you don't push on, but you, you force him to do a bit of work and... I, I honestly, I think that that's a perfectly valid thing. I mean, sort of the in the unwritten rules of cycling, just to be very clear, there was no obligation to wait whatsoever because Pogacar had instigated. He had caused the, the issue himself. It was not just bad luck. It was his, it was an error. And you do not need to wait for people who make errors. It would, that, that's part of the reason why it makes it such a sportsmanlike act. But it was definitely not sort of... Not required. None of that stuff's required by the by the unwritten rules. But well, not required by the unwritten rules, basically. So that does bring me to next year, and and one sort of last point about these two, which is that I am already excited yeah. about the hype and the buildup 
next June. You've been saying that for like four or five days I now. Am, I, am, <laughs> I have been excited about next year for a couple days now because it, this is the first time in a long time we've had uh, a friend of mine took issue with this, this language, but a sort of change in the dominant rider year after year. So we had a very dominant rider last year in Pogacar, and we thought we had a very dominant rider this year in Pogacar again. Turns out, Vigigo has been relatively dominant, to be honest. I mean, the two key moments, he put significant time into Pogacar, and Pogacar never managed to distance him any other time. So that, to me, is dominant. And now next year, we're going to be coming into the Tour de France completely unsure which version of these two riders we're going to see which one is going to dominate the other or whether it's just going to be tight all the way through. And they are very similar in their physical attributes, basically. They're both pretty good time trialists, very good time trialists. They're both the best climbers in the world. We're not looking at a situation where we've got a good time trialist versus a good climber where, you know, there's have to take time where else it's just going to be head to head every single day next year. And I already can't wait. I've got a question which will benefit from someone with more experience. Is it is it usual that we have these sort of contenders and guys so far above emerge so quickly? Because Jonas Vingard, the first time we knew about him was when he won that UAE tour. I managed to hold off the peloton and then suddenly he came second at the tour and then he's won it a year later with Pogaccio, was third of the Vuelta, winning a couple of stages, then tour win the next year. Is it, is it usual we have these such sudden rise from obscurity? Pogaccio was very young, but I would say that his rise was more linear. Uh, whereas Vingigo is, what, 26, I think, now? 25, 26. 25? 26, he's not doing the white yeah. jersey, is he? Um, yeah, and his, his rise was definitely more abrupt. And that's a little bit less normal, but not unusual. I mean, yeah. you know you're talking about such small percentages at the top here that the difference between Vingigo and fifth today is like a couple percent. Yeah. You're talking like two or 3% and that's not much. And so you're not going from essentially pack fodder to the best in the world takes just a, a relatively small bump. And so you, you, it's not, it's not abnormal specifically because because it's so tight at the top, right? So, I mean, if, if you sort of look back at like incredible rises over the last 10 years, Chris Froome is the biggest one, yeah. right? And, and, you know, he can point to uh, some disease. Uh, he can point to just sort of like lack of kind of knowing what he was doing when he first got to Europe, things like that. There are various reasons for this. Um, talent is talent. And generally you can, you can, see it quite early. And that's why I say Tade is a little bit more linear and, and even though he got to the top really early, it sort of makes more sense to me. Um, but I don't find Vingigo in any way sort of unusual. Vingigo won something at, well, he didn't, he didn't win the yellow jersey today. He did win the stage, but he also won the King of the Mountains jersey, thanks to 20 points at the top, which means that Simon Geschke will wear the polka dot jersey to Paris, but then won't appear in it on the final podium. He, he actually he said... He was in tears after the finish line. He was crouched down, elbows over knees, in polka dots, just bawling one out. He said that he would rather wear his team kit. 
Yeah, I'm not surprised. He has to have a he has to wear a reminder for tomorrow's flat stage, a time trial. He's got to wear a polka dot time trial suit and then ride into Paris in a jersey he can't wear on the podium. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how you adjust the the competition, but the polka dot jersey getting won by the winner of the bike race for the past three years. Much of the time, it means it's broken. Yeah, and there's no point in having it. Right, like, what's the point of the jersey if it just gets won by the guy that wins the bike race? Yeah, well, it was it was a fun battle over the past like few days. Like, it gave it but, gave a subtext to today. But, but Bingo yeah. isn't even trying for it. Yeah, and, and they asked, they obviously have to ask him in the um, in the TV grab interview afterwards. Like, and what does it mean to win the the polka dot jersey? And Bingo obviously is not gonna, you know, piss off the entirety of ASO and the Tour de France by being like, well, obviously not much. I won yellow, man. Um, <laughs> But yeah, obviously it means it means little. It's, it's cool that he's won it, probably, and he can always say he's won it. But it should yeah, go to a guy like Geshka, who's they've had a plan. They tried to execute it. He imploded quite early today. Didn't stand a chance. Julia Ciccone tried. He came. He went first over that. Trek first really AC. went for it. They went for it, yeah. and it's a little too late. Yeah, I just I don't like it. I don't like it. I mean, I don't know how you fix it. Maybe you maybe you remove points at the finish line. Because yeah. by the finish line, you're often talking about okay, who who who's going for the stage? Who's who's what GC leader has caught up? Pippa was suggesting but, to up the the points one on the smaller mountain. So like with yeah. the intermediate sprints, it's closer, I think, in the intermediate sprints to the the sprint finishes, and it's more equitable, which probably makes these ends. Why Wild Van Aert went for so many intermediate sprints? Yeah, I don't know what the solution is, but that, that work. I mean, that would work. Um, I just know I don't like it. <laughs> I just know that I, I, it's just silly. Luckily, it's not it's your job to figure it out. You can just say you don't like it, and then hopefully, if yeah. enough people say they don't like it, they'll change it. We'll go tell Fabrice tomorrow. We'll uh, Fabrice walk, will not like that. Walk up to him at the at the press center and say, Fabrice, we have a problem. Uh, maybe uh, Ian can speak to Pierre Muglach about it, because <laughs> Ian's already been bothering him about all sorts of things in the communique. Yeah, I've, I've worked out a way to charm the ASO staff. Oh, yeah. Our favorite junior ASO staff member, Pierre Muglach. Uh, I've never seen him frown. He's he's a very happy young man. Yeah, quite uh, quite dainty, and the desks that the ASO staffers sit behind are quite low. So I I have you learnt... just referred him as dainty, but not uh... no. I feel like he's quite compact and strong. Yeah, I, yeah. I wouldn't I wouldn't mess with him. Yeah, I would not uh, fight. Nor would I. Nor would I. But I I think that's probably more of a I think he's of more. Myself uh, than oh, Josh else. is. I'm just wondering, do you think Pierre listens to the podcast? I hope so, because he's my favorite. Pierre, if you listen to the podcast, please greet Ian with a boy howdy tomorrow. So my Or a chubs out, whatever you want to do. My learning from, uh, from parenting two small children is that if you're talking to somebody and you're trying to build rapport and, uh, and get the information out of them that you need, you, you kind of need to get down on their level. And the ASO desks are quite low, so I was just sort of kneeling across the desk from, from Pierre Muglach, uh, just asking him a question about the Lantern Rouge classification this year. So I, and then he came over and he delivered some information to me in his inimitable Pierre Muglach way. Um, <laughs> and he was also, he also got down low and we, we were both just a pair of crouchy guys talking about so, uh, a category nobody cares about. So we need to tell him about our problem. I, I think I, I I would feel comfortable telling Pierre all manner of things about all manner of problems. No, but there is people do care about that classification. There's a sponsor now. There is a sponsor. Uh, that classification, not to uh, just 
I'll just warn off any rival publications that are listening because I've been sniffing about this for a while and I don't want them to get the wrong idea. But uh, lastminute.com, the travel booking website, has sponsored this classification. Today I found out that uh, there's a special number that the riders get to wear into Paris if they want it. And <laughs> they also get to go up on the stage again if they want it. So it's quite a, quite a tantalizing... Oh yeah, I'd want it. Well, I, but does Caleb Ewan want it? I don't think Caleb Ewan does want it. I think Reinhard Jens van Rensburg does want it. I think it's going to be an interesting uh, few days in the Lotto Sudal camp whilst they juggle whether a, a millionaire that lives in Monaco <laughs> wants to rep lastminute.com or whether Reinhard Jens van Rensburg, uh, who's probably a little bit more excited to go along with the adventure of being the worst rider in the race, uh, whether he, he's going to go along with it. Good story. Don't worry. The Wall Street Journal will not write it. Thank you, The Wall Street Journal. I, I'm, I'm more worried about all the other imitators out there. The main question I have, which you obviously can't ask Reiner or Caleb, is do you spend that £1,000 voucher on one night somewhere amazing, or do you try and have like a two-week-long, three-week-long break at somewhere like a Formula 1? I've, I've, been, <laughs> I've been trying to formulate this question in my head and Johnny's been there for much of the workshopping of that. Uh, we've, we've just been like, okay, so we can't really go up to Caleb Ewan, quite an accomplished man who is... He's having a, and he's having a tough time of it, and we don't really want to twist the knife with He is having questions. a bit of a time. So I, I, I don't want to go up to him and then just go completely off piece in a, an interview by saying, where would you go on holiday for $1,000, yeah. Caleb? Because <laughs> uh, I think that's a little bit unsettling. But I think Reinhardt, probably is a little bit more willing to go along with it. And I can just say, would you prefer like three nights in Lanzarote or 10 days in Warsaw? Although I once, when I was very early on in my cycling journalism career, I did an interview with Caleb Ewan in like the pit of the six day London. Did it with a video camera, everything. And I asked him 10 very offbeat questions, none of them about cycling. Nowadays, I would never try that out, but I did through sheer idiocy, and it worked, and he played along and was telling me all about how he loved the Simpsons uh, cartoon, and I, the next question after that was, if he had a superpower, what would it be? And he, he, he thought for a good, long while, and then he was like, my superpower would be, I don't, know how he, I don't know how to say it, but if I could be here, and then I could be someone on the other side of the world really quickly, like, what do you call that? Teleportation. And I, was like, I, I like, Teleportation is like, that's it. Very seriously, that's it. That's what I want, teleportation. Wow. So maybe he would respond. I think that at various points through this Tour de France, he has been wishing he would teleport to the end of it. Yeah. So um, unfortunately, he hasn't mastered that yet, but maybe maybe he'll, he'll get there one day. Yeah. I, I also have one other little offbeat nugget uh, from today's racing. Does I, that replace the nerd nugget? What, what do we, we have? just received a text message no, from... That is amazing. ...from Fabrice... Tiano, who uh, is... Okay, yep. You explain Fabrice. Fabrice is um, our lord and savior in the press room. He's the one man that makes sure the Tour de France actually manages to like happen and exist. We and love he's, him. Yeah, he's... He, he's essentially the, he's the press officer, press manager of the entire Tour de France. And so if you have problems and you are press, which we are, we go to him. Uh, Pierre, but anyway, Pierre Muglach is several rungs down that ladder. Yeah, Pierre Muglach is, is, a, is a Fabrice minion. He's a burgeoning Fabrice Tiano. One day, I think yep. he can make it. I agree. Anyway, he has just sent us a text message on the sort of big, large media group. Where it's, lots of lost and found things get posted, like yeah. laptop cables. Well, we had, we had, we've had three lost and founds today, which indicates <laughs> the, the fatigue 
of the press corps in general. Uh, the first was what appears to be the plug for a very terrible laptop. Yeah. Uh, some sort of like Acer or something like that. Uh, the second is a pair of quite nice sunglasses, which we thought might be Mikey's for yeah, a moment. Yeah, so nice you thought they might be Mikey's. He's but they are not. Man. He them. And the third is someone's entire <laughs> roller bag luggage. <laughs> How do you forget a whole suitcase? Because surely you just, you, it's by your desk. You're not putting it somewhere away away. It's there. We have, uh, in, in our more rat baggy moments, been considering what we could implant in the press room and just leave there. Um, oh, maybe yeah. with like the name of a rival publication on it. So it would just get blasted <laughs> out to everybody. Like, uh, I don't know, like a, a cat leash or something with cycling news on it. Oh, and, and another thing that's been happening as the English speaking press get more tired and start sharing quotes around, like whoever transcribes the press conference quickly just sends it there. Dan Benson yesterday put in at the bottom of... Was wait, it wait, 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 wait. We need to slow this one down for the context okay. for the people. So, Sorry. So there is a... We've discussed this previously on... on If you've listened to previous Tours de France podcasts, the great international quote exchange. So we cannot all be in all places at all times. And so, you know, the, 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 the folks that work at Cycling News, the folks that work at Cycling Weekly, Vela News, who are actual colleagues, we are all colleagues, Right. It, that includes the Spanish papers and, you know, Gazetta and things like that. And so we share quotes and there's there's big WhatsApp groups. And essentially you're like, all right, can somebody grab the press conference? Because I'm on the top of a mountain and I cannot get it. And so that's how you get your quotes. That is the context around this. Sorry. Yes. I always rush into these stories way too quickly. <laughs> now, Johnny. What, what, what sneaky things has Daniel Benson been doing? Daniel Benson, uh, a man who I only met for the first time this tour impish as I had expected. He sends, I think, Pogaccia quotes maybe down the, down the chat and the final line is, my favorite cycling publication is VeloNews. <laughs> so then immediately we we're like, that's a good idea. Maybe we'll catch someone out who's, you know, maybe feeling a bit lazy and then just gonna copy and paste the whole thing into their article and not even read it. Because <laughs> that's the stage of the tour we're at. So today, a couple of people asked for the Vingegaard press conference because you get stage winner in yellow jersey and he obviously is both. So you get a longer one. So it's usually more worthwhile because you actually get to get into it with him. So we, we'd finished, I typed it up as it went. And I went over to Kayla, where, where, where's the best place? And should we insert, insert something? So we, we saw a bit where Vingo was talking about how he gets on the phone to his family at, at the end of the stage and you see him on the rollers and he's chatting away. Uh, and so there's a line in the press conference that says, like, the first thing I do is, is call my family and you know, tell them what happens. And we had in, and the second thing I do is check up on the Cycling Tips' great Tour de France coverage. But I think it got spotted. We'll have to check, we'll have to go around and... We're just waiting for this exact quote to show up in Le Keep tomorrow. Yeah, if it, if it hits any rival publication, it will be screenshotted immediately and just posted every day for the rest of everyone's life. <laughs> All right, everybody. Uh, I believe our, our dinner table is ready. Whew. That was a day. Yeah. Should that was hear, a day. Should we hear from Jose? We should hear from him. Oh, firstly, sorry, I just jumped the gun on you there. You were going to provide the very quick Mayo Sable update. Oh, I was. Quick Mayo Sable. So... You were excited in the car and you heard it and you are like, I'll save it, but I'm excited. So, the current... 
holder of the Miles Sadler. It's not particularly exciting to me, although he's a perfectly fine human being. Dylan Toynes, Dunes, has the Miles Sadler with 106.01. Yep. However, just on the other side of the divide, oh, yeah. at 57.59, right. just the type of rider who could very well lose two minutes over the next two stages In a time trial. is American superstar Giuseppe Coos. No. Sepp Coos would love the Mario Sable. I should say that Ian asked me today whether, whether Sepp's uh, full name was 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 Giuseppe Giuseppe yeah, <laughs> yeah. or and uh, Kaylee pointed out that it it is not uh, so we have decided that it is no we I think we decided that during the Giro and if he rides the Giro again then he will be known as Giuseppe Cus yes which I think is a fair sort of uh, if you ride did, in Italy did, did, did anyone call Italian. him did anyone call him the other day did anyone anyone pick him I can't remember no my pick was Nelson Paulus but but. Palace is at 44.58 after today, so he's he's not going to lose 16 minutes in the next two days. Crosswinds tomorrow. Could happen. Could happen. I think Se- so. So the real battle at this point in time is probably between Sepp Kuss and Thomas Pidcock. Wow. Pidcock's at 53 minutes, so he would have to, he'd have to essentially like pull the plug, and yeah. I don't think he will. No. So I think Sepp Kuss is, is almost a lock. For this, yeah. I mean, unless we see something very strange happen, it's looking like Sepp might take the Mile Sable into Paris. Great. Well, he'd, he'd be a great person to, to, to carry it. I will shoot him a text. Yes, do. And let him know. It's very lucky that the person who's probably going to wear the Mile Sable is someone who is from where you live. <laughs> We're not going to be able to replicate this every year. And who I have known for quite some time. Yeah. Yes. Uh, it's like when George Bennett won it. It was great. Although we don't <laughs> live in the same town, but I like George. We should, before we wrap up for today, head over to Jose Bain. Today, we are remembering Nicholas Portal, who was a director sportif and former pro cyclist, director at Sky and Ineos, and died tragically a couple years ago. And we're going to take a gander at a very important relic in the Catholic faith. And I don't believe I haven't actually listened to this one yet. I don't believe she's talking about lords. There's something else for tomorrow's stage. It's stage 19 and we are almost there. The last real road stage and it looks like one for the sprinters. The start of Friday's stage is in Castelnau, Manioac. And Castelnau is a place name you see everywhere in the south of France. And it's nothing else than the Occitan version of Chateauneuf, Newcastle of which there are literally hundreds in France. There's just many castles in this country, and they were all new at some point in time. The intermediate sprint is in Auge, and that is the birthplace of Nicolas Portal, former rider and sports director. The duo of Portal and Servas Knave were the architect behind five Tour de France wins for Team Sky, four for Chris Froome and one for Geraint Thomas. Portal died when he was just 40 in 2020 and is missed by many at Team Ineos. His name is mentioned on all the team vehicles and I am sure the team will remember him extra on today's stage. On the route, we pass through Cahors, which is a centre of gastronomy, but also home to an important relic in Roman Catholicism. Relics are pieces of a body, clothing or utensils that, according to popular belief, actually possess the power of the saint. 
In the late Middle Ages, the faithful considered a saint to be close to God. They therefore invoked him as an intercessor with God who is far above the common man. A saint was more accessible and, in a way, more attractive than God because he was more concrete and moreover tangible through his relics. In theory, the saints themselves had no divine power, but in practice, they worshipped the saints directly and expected miracles from him and from the awesome supernatural power of his relics. In the Middle Ages, people were fond of relics. These not only functioned as a reminder of the saint, they also stood in the place of the saint, as it were, and thus formed pieces of heaven on earth. And to worship the relics was to worship the saint himself, or herself for that matter. In Cahors, we find a relic of Jesus Christ, namely the headdress he wore after his crucifixion for his burial. At the time, the Jews covered the head of the dead with a headdress that served as a chin strap. They then wrapped the body in a shroud tied with bandages. And finally, they covered the face with a veil to retain the perfumes. After the resurrection of Christ, the disciples would have taken the mortuary linens from the empty grave. There are many stories on how this important piece of fabric ended up in Cahors. It would have been given to Charlemagne around 803 and he gave it to the Bishop of Cahors, or it was brought back from one of the many crusades by local knights and bishops. The centre coiffe, as it's known in French, shows bloodstains that match the stains that appear on the world-famous Shroud of Turin. The relic has been part of Cahors history for many years. In 1482, when the pest and plague ravaged the region, the inhabitants of Cahors carried the headdress in a procession through town asking to be spared. And they were. Nowadays, the relic is taken out very rarely for this play or for a procession. They did a procession in 1940 at the start of the Second World War and then 79 years later in 2019 again when the cathedral was 900 years old. In 2020, the bishop prayed in front of the relic for all the victims of the COVID-19 pandemic. This very important relic of the Passion of the Christ is now held in secrecy in the Saint-Josbert Chapel of the Saint-Étienne Cathedral in Cahors. All right, gentlemen, it is time for us to go have some dinner. It is 10 o'clock. Hopefully they will still serve us dinner. Let's get out of here. (laughs) We are tired, but we are excited about this bike race, and we've got potential for echelons tomorrow, and it will be a good one. So we'll be back tomorrow with another Tour Daily. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.